0: Naylor's Natter the Book, Ideas and Advice from the Collective Wisdom of Teachers. Naylor's Natter brings together a wealth of advice from the most influential voices in education today. In this exciting, one-of-a-kind book, Phil Naylor revisits the very best interviews from three years of education podcasting, drawing on the advice and opinions from some of the world's most innovative educators. Available now for pre-order from Amazon, and out on July 7th, 2022. Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA
1: 1977 on Twitter. Natter, just talking to teachers. Okay, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's Nailers Natter. And I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Toby Salt, who's going to be talking to us about his book, which is The Juggling Act, uh, How to Juggle Leadership and Life. So welcome to the podcast, Toby.
2: Hi, Phil. Nice to meet you.
1: Yes, nice to meet you too. And uh, I've been reading the book over the last couple of days, so thank you very much um, for sending that across. Really interesting book, um, on, obviously, as the title would suggest, about leadership, and we're actually trying to kind of... Uh, role model leadership here. So again, you know, I am after school hours here, uh, viewer <laughs> slash listener, sat in the uh, in the office. So we are trying to, uh, as we said, usually work as well as this. But this is work, isn't it, Toby? We are talking about school. We're talking about leadership. So if again, a door goes, a phone rings, or whatever it might be, apologies, but at least we're staying close to teaching. Okay, Toby, let's get you in with a nice, gentle introductory question, if we could. So can you tell us a little bit about you and what advice would you give to your younger self, uh, knowing that you're about to embark on a lifetime of learning?
2: Okay, so I'll resist um, doing a long bibliography, you know, how it sort of biography of, of everything I've read and everything I, I've done. But um, basically, I'm a teacher. That's what I was originally. Uh, then moved into leadership positions, uh, became a head quite young, and then moved to run the first federation of. Uh, Two schools being run by one head when it was very new and very innovative, uh, partly because a school down the road needed help. That was the only reason it wasn't empire building. Uh, And then moved. um, I was young, enthusiastic and very gobby, I think. And I got spotted by um, government. And at that time, it was Tony Blair who'd just been elected. And I then was approached and applied to be a director of the DFE Innovation Unit, it was called then, which was bottom-up innovation, senior senior civil servants, trying to implement innovative projects and change the culture within the civil service. And interestingly, I chose to do that part-time and stayed as a head teacher, which you will see in the book gives lots of anecdotes of... Uh, it, uh, all the way through, I've tried to keep my roles grounded in the realities of leadership. Uh, at the time, we were living in schools uh, with children. And so, you know, we were surrounded. I'd go to a big, important meeting and come back to chaos back at school, or a child who's had a nightmare, or a child who put their fist through a window, or um, a parent who was distressed. And so I was firmly grounded in the realities. I then uh, was on the Governing Council of National College of School Leadership, which was set up when Ed, uh, Tony Blair famously said, uh, when asked the question, uh, if you had three priorities, if you were made Prime Minister, what would they be? He said education, education, education. We'll all remember that. And then, of course, a year in, he was saying, how do I do that? And one of the issues was, well, maybe if we invested in school leadership, that will improve the quality of our schools and support school leaders, hence the National College of School Leadership. And I was on the Governing Council set that up and then, to cut a long story short, moved over from being a non-exec to being the Deputy Chief Executive and in charge of the school leadership elements. And that gave me a taste of away from schools, uh, moved to be the Chief Executive of Ormiston Academy's Trust when the National College decided to push itself out into being licensed programmes and stop being a building of its own. And uh, Ormiston Academy's Trust was set up by a great founder to make a difference to children in the most disadvantaged communities in England. And we grew quite large, and we grew probably too quickly looking back, but it was a great job with some fantastic school leaders. We worked really hard to make a big difference. And after six years, I was approached to be the CEO of AQA, the largest exam board in the UK. And I thought that would be interesting because it had... As a charity, but it had commercial subsidiaries. I'd learn more about uh, education, and I'd learn more about a different style. I'd have worked in government, I'd worked in schools, I'd run a mat, and then I would have run um, an educational charity in a business. And it was fascinating, absolutely terrifying, fascinating. The scale of what AQA does is terrifying. Um, and I did that for just under three years when I got diagnosis of prostate cancer. And at the same time, my wife got promotion at work and said it was her turn now. Um, And it was a combination of that. And if I was honest, I was beginning to think, do I want to carry on being in charge of organizations and having all that gross responsibility? And I wasn't sleeping well. And so I moved back from being the CEO and into, I think, what's called a portfolio career. But um, I support a number of organizations now um, and do some coaching and mentoring of CEOs and heads and charity leaders.
1: Fantastic. And that's um, so I then where I did give you a bibliography. Oh, sorry, biography, didn't I? But <laughs> There we go. You did. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I did, but that's great. Right. Just on a technical note, are you seeing any lines on my recording? Because I'm not seeing any lines moving yes. at all. Yes. So my lines are moving on your screen? Yes. Excellent. The lines we'll- going we'll-
2: across with ups and downs.
1: Oh, good, because it doesn't move on mine. So we'll carry on regardless. Obviously, yeah, i no, uh, In I'll,
2: terms of what, what advice I give myself, well, you know, the truth is, um, life is about juggling. And I, I don't, I'm not ashamed of the fact that I put work first a lot of the time and that I really cared about what I do. And I really care about providing great quality education, particularly those who've had a raw deal. But I do regret sometimes saying yes too often. I do regret, regret sometimes putting uh, work before personal priorities. And again, in the book, I talk about some fairly shocking times when people slapped me around the face metaphorically and said, what on earth are you doing here when your wife's in hospital, when your son's in hospital? And I'd sort of lost my sense of perspective and what was important. So my piece of advice to young leaders is, yes, care about what you do, but don't lose your sense of perspective and why you're doing it. And at the same time, be nice to those people on the way up because you'll meet them on the way down. <laughs> so the fact that I'm still paying the mortgage and I'm still still in work is because I was nice to people on the way up and they're being nice to me on my way down. And at the same time, I want to look back and look at what legacy I've left in terms of leadership. I can look with pride at the number of heads and CEOs that have grown and are better than me and have grown around because of um, the opportunities that I've given them in the same way I was given opportunities. And all the schools that um, I led have gone on to be as good, if not better, than when I was there. I think they're all better than when I was there
1: great stuff um i mean obviously you talked uh, really honestly there in the introduction but also throughout the book and it's interesting when you give that advice to you know i mean i'm obviously I say obviously i'm a leader of you know a secondary school but also I mean, i've been that for about 10 years or so and it's really honest advice but it's really difficult to take isn't it when you're in the cut and thrust and the thick of it to read this book as i did over the weekend and then start thinking you know maybe now i need to realign some of my you know, priorities and make sure that I'm, and I love the bit that you did tell me about the emails at 10 o'clock at night. uh, And and also the fact that they came from you as CEO of the trust, because obviously you're sending that just to be polite and make sure you get back to people. But anybody who gets an email at 10 o'clock at night from the CEO of the trust assumes as you put in the book immediately, they're going to be handed your P45 as soon as you walk through the door the next day. So it's really refreshing, really honest feedback in terms of you know a life that's been lived throughout education and you're still doing it aren't you you're very much still doing it and you can you can kind of feel that coming through as well
2: no thank you and and you're right it's really hard and I do hope if someone um, who's experienced as you are stops and thinks then that's great I didn't write it for any other reason I mean it's all a bit obvious um, but there's some interesting stories in there and some things that will make you laugh and hopefully some things that will make you pause and think or cry but the reality is I do think that um, we just need to keep, keep a sense of perspective really, really hard considering the last two years that school years have had. I'm chair of governors of four academies and I look with awe and absolute empathy when I know what they are juggling. And I remind them frequently, go home. Look Definitely. after your family. Look after yourselves.
1: Definitely. Great advice. Right. So speaking of, you know, all the stories, and obviously you're very extremely passionate about serving, um, you know, children disadvantaged communities through the schools that you've led. Um, but what I liked in the introduction is how you talked about Darren and I was intrigued to read whether that was, you know, one particular student that had had an influence on you throughout your career, but actually the way that you kind of put every story, every human weakness, every human strength that comes through the doors of school into this persona of Darren. So if you tell listeners a little bit about Darren? So Darren is a metaphorical. He,
2: he he is based on real young people and real children that I've had responsibility for. Uh, and I've used him as a proxy. Uh, and it, it partly came about from when you are offered lots of exciting opportunities. And I can remember saying one day to my wife, oh, I've got a reception at number 10. That's very topical, particularly around this period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a reception at number 10, um, but there's also... Um, Uh, parents' evening that I've got to go to and I talk about this in the book you know and it's parents' evening at school Um, I wonder if I could do both and she just looked at me as only a wife can in slight disappointment and said well it's obvious which one you should do isn't it and I said well I don't know well which one would make a difference to Darren and that was where it came from Mm -hmm. um And it made me think, and of course I did the parents evening, um, because actually when you look at the the difference, and it doesn't mean I never went to number 10 receptions, I did because I thought they would make a wider difference because I'd be able to have a uh, a wider influence and that's fine too. But Darren is, um, and I think every leader and every teacher will think of these youngsters and, you know, these these go back 20 years and I'm going to read you a little bit about one, What's, what's difficult for me is, of course, I had to change their names in the book, even though they gave me permission to write it. So I've got to be really careful that I don't um, say their names. But this is one, and I'm going to read it from the book. So I think it's easier if I read it directly from the book. Mm. Um, and when I talk about Darren, I have a picture of Liam's haunting eyes. Liam was fostered by us for a long time. He could be a witty, charming and achieve well, but he felt the rejection from his his parents deeply, and he needed constant reassurance, and was always testing you to see if you would leave him too. Liam's eyes were these huge brown saucers, but they were simmering with deep unhappiness and anger. One of the hardest things I ever had to do was to drive him to an agreed meeting on a Saturday to meet his mother once a month. Each time, he would change his clothes beforehand, go and get shave, and at least twice change again. I would drive him, as he twittered like a child on Christmas Eve, to the designated meeting point. Every time, I had a sickening feeling, and each time, so cruelly, every single time, she didn't show. He was always so broken on the journey home, He cried so sincerely, and it was heartbreaking. 20 years later, I still got upset about it. I did eventually manage to persuade social worker; It was unfair. But that sort of experience has left me grounded and taught me that you do the right thing. When it feels right, you do it, and you keep your leadership promises. And then I use other youngsters too, who've been through such awful times, and where you remember that actually what you do, you try and do for the right. I am no saint, and I have got things wrong so many times. But what I try and do when I'm making leadership decisions is look at it through the lens of what we write for someone like Liam. It's so powerful,
1: that particular section of the book, isn't it? in terms of, you know, we can all picture similar situations and especially, you know, speaking personally, Toby, I mean, I'm the DSL um, in a school in Blackpool. So you can imagine that, you know, I I might know or teach a lot of Darren's or Liam's or those kind of things. And and in terms of understanding that, but, you know, it it never gets any easier to listen to those kind of stories, but you're right about the decision-making, you know, in the the best interests uh, of the child, absolutely. Okay, so... Moving on a little bit. Now, I know you've alluded to this already and we've talked quite a lot about um, your, your kind of role within you know, education more widely. Um, and one of the people that you quoted earlier on was, was Tony Blair. And, you know, one of the keys to leadership that you've talked about in one of the chapters is the ability to say no. So is that one of your keystones for leadership, the ability to say no? And if yeah, so, I mean, I what use, to? <laughs> yeah, no,
2: I use that as a, an example. And, I, and I, you know, he he. there were lots of things that people, whether they're not being political, did or didn't like about Tony Blair, but one of the things, he was a very good orator, um, and he was grounded and he really cared. And he said famously, the art of leadership is to say no. It's easy to say yes, but the art of leadership is saying no. And he's very right, because particularly as you, you work your way up the greasy pole, you get all sorts of requests and opportunities, and you get all sorts of um, flattering approaches. And actually you need to filter them through the lens of, is this right for me? Is this right for the organisation I lead? And, going back to what we just talked about, is this right for Darren? And when you're given a choice of things to do, looking at it through, is this going to make a difference to Darren? And Darren must be your metaphorical Bunch of youngsters that you have in your head, those memories, those scars, those times of happiness and sadness that you've shared with youngsters. What would they be saying to you? What would the adults say themselves be saying to you? So I do think there are times when I've said yes and no. I mean, I I haven't got it right. When I was at the National College, I can remember it's not in the book, but I can remember doing dinners with head teachers um, with the Secretary of State. And it, you know they were really important because that group of um, youngsters needed to have dinner with the Secretary of State. But I, I, lots of people didn't know this. Sometimes I was doing three or four dinners. <laughs> At the time, I was almost bordering on anorexic anyway, and and I was having to sit there and, like the Queen, trying to eat small portions, trying to pretend to eat. Um, so the Secretary of State was well aware that I was doing one dinner after the other. But the bunch of head teachers had no idea that I'd already done two more before I saw them. I probably should have just said
1: no and done one. It's difficult, though, isn't it? It's really, really difficult. And, you know, again, I took a lot of encouragement from reading the book, because what you've done is distilled a lot of wisdom that it would take a long time to accumulate, that perhaps we haven't got. And by the time you've accumulated that wisdom, you're probably not in the position where you're making those decisions on a daily basis anyway, because it takes almost a lifetime in leadership to get to the point where you've got that wisdom to be able to say no. And I can recognize, and I'm sure listeners can as well, many, many times when you think, well, I need to do that because it will help to improve the image of the school, or it will help improve our standing, or or it will recruit more teachers for us, or it will get more pupils in, or whatever it might be. But then it takes away from the the day-to-day. And like you've said about the examples, when you come back to school, and it's like, right, what is on my desk upon returning? And would some of those things have happened, potentially, if I'd have carried on doing the core business so it's quite a difficult juggling act, exactly how you put it in the book. Yeah, really, but what, really I, what I've
2: tried to do, I mean, it's, it's very charming, you say it's wisdom, and I have to say, I have to give credit to Laura McInerney for mm-hmm. um, ordering my thoughts. You know, I blabbed, and she was really good at ordering them, uh, and embellishing. Not that there's any lies, it's all completely grottily and grittily true. But what, what it, I tried to do is, if you go back to when, when I was teaching, particularly when it's teaching youngsters special education needs, the art of a good teacher is to get the relatively complex and make it simple and accessible. So by making this, you know, a loo read rather than a library read, I'm hoping that people will look beneath it. But that doesn't mean... And I I could have... And I started off the first version I peppered with lots of really meaningful management quotes. I thought there's lots of books that do that. Actually, no, what people need to do is just read it, reflect on it, and I owe it to the next generation of leaders to tell them some of the pitfalls and some of the mistakes and some of the howlers and some of the wonderful uh, things that I've I've experienced.
1: Mm, Definitely. And I mean, we might talk about this later on, but particularly in the areas of system leadership, because there's a lot of books around school leadership, but not a lot of books around potentially, you know, the bigger picture. And that is becoming more and more of a role. And I had a conversation last week with uh, Harry Hudson, who was doing something on um, must do better. And he was talking about, you know, career paths for teachers. And there are opportunities now, aren't there for leaders to work, not just within their organisation, or I can't speak, their own organisation, but more widely across trusts, you know, maths, whatever it might be. And actually that system level leadership that's still rooted in a school is a new role, isn't it? And obviously it's something that you've done. Absolutely. And, then the and there's a chapter
2: in there about getting the balance of autonomy uh, right, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. you don't want to lose that thing. But actually, yeah, one of the things I've learned um, through bitter experience, is how to have an influence on a wider scale. When when you're leading 50 schools or 40 schools or 30 schools, you you need to make sure that um, you have different ways of managing things than when you're running an individual school. And When you're running um, AQA, which had 35,000 markers and 1,000 staff spread across six offices nationally and has international exam centres too, um, you know, again... It becomes about system leadership and about spreading yourself and your influence, the culture, and the juggling act.
1: Definitely. Okay, so another chapter uh, moving on through. You talked about building a hoist in your organisation? And you talked about um, social mobility, which is a phrase, I don't know if you actually use social mobility as a phrase in there. I got pulled up with Professor Michael Young about this, uh, when he talked to me, it should have been social justice rather than social mobility, because he, um, quite rightly, said there's not many people at the top that are moving down. Um, so you're not really seeing much of mobility. But, you know, how can we build that hoist in your organisation? And do you feel as if oxbridge grammar schools etc still have a role and still matter in that that kind of quest for social justice so so in the book i give
2: one example i could think of many others um and i do you know i i I call it social justice social mobility i start off and it's in the in the book i talk about my father and you know we all have influential characters in our lives and nearly always it's our father I don't know whether my children would say the same they probably won't Uh, my son certainly wouldn't but um, and my father would be hideously embarrassed um, about it but you know he grew up um, in the grossiest bits of Leeds his mother died having him and um, he was placed with a woman who he thought was um, his mother but I'm fat I think she was uh, a prostitute paid to look after him from what he's told us since in later life and he had some horrific experiences of neglect and abuse um, and had a very very difficult early childhood his father uh, then after the war he he, during the war he'd been sent to Iceland to run the listening station and had a a illustrious career and done some very important work in terms of protecting the winter convoys but he um fell in love with an Icelandic woman who came over to the woman I knew as my grandmother who was no blood relative at all um, who only spoke Icelandic and she uh, realized that he had a son that he had rejected at birth because his wife had died and she went and got him and was kind to my father but he had a really really he only had a a few years of schooling he left school unable to read went away joined the army where the army um, at 14 um, became a boy soldier uh, lying about his age and they realized that he um, had some innate leadership skills and some intelligence and educated him to go on to eventually become an officer and more illustriously and exciting a spy and then eventually a teacher um, <coughs> And he would say very powerfully very strongly don't be slushy Toby you know bored hearing about deprived or disadvantaged children you know life is what you make of it. Uh, in a sort of chippy gritty Yorkshire way but um yes education matters education makes the difference that's what is important and that's what drives me and still that's what drives me that education is important and in your organization you need to build a hoist so that all have had access to that so I use the example of and I'm trying to check what I call it (laughs) because I've got to get it right Luke um and um He was a lad who, when I first met him, uh, was a bouncy, uh, Chelsea-supporting, very athletic youngster, Uh, and by the time I stopped being the head of that school, he was in a wheelchair unable to speak, so he had a very significant, debilitating disease, a bit like muscular dystrophy. Interestingly, I still see him sometimes around the town. He still stops and talks to me, and I'm one of the few people who can still understand him, even though things we always got on. And I can remember when I'd raised money and we'd managed to get a swimming pool built as part of the school. Um, We put a new roof on it, new heating, and it was really fantastic. And his class were in there having swimming lessons. Um, And he was sat on the side in his wheelchair looking really, really unhappy and not unreasonably. The PE teacher had said, you can't go in. We haven't got a hoist and it's not safe to get you in. I'm really sorry. We can't, can't get you in. Um, very kindly, but he was so bitterly disappointed. He, he, every other sport had been taken away. He couldn't do anything else. The only thing he could do was probably swim. And we hadn't got the money for a hoist. Now, I was the head teacher, and you know, the head teacher, you can sometimes take risks. So I said, I will tell you what, go and get him changed. <laughs> um, and off he went. He got changed, he came back in the wheelchair. And I said, Right, a bit of a risk. Took him to the deep end. Are you happy for this? He was very happy for it. He was 13 and 14. He wanted to be in the water, um, cleared the way and tipped him up and unceremoniously plopped him into the water where he had that very lovely half-hour swim lesson. We then went on to raise money for a hoist because I'd learnt my lesson. But um, that's a very physical example of building the hoist. And I could give you others. I do think Oxbridge matters. When I was at Ormiston, I was really shocked that some youngsters were making such poor post-16 options. And that we were giving them such poor advice. You'd talk to really bright youngsters and say, what are you doing? And they'd say, I'm doing A-level law, sir, because I want to be a lawyer. Say, why are you doing A-level law? I, to be a... I remember meeting a young, a, a young woman who said, um, I want to go to the University of X um, because I want to be a firefighter. And I said, why are you going to university if you want to be a firefighter? Is that what you really want to do? Or do you want to do something else? And we were just not giving them the best advice we could. Some schools were, some weren't and the other thing was that most of our youngsters weren't getting to the best universities and they weren't getting the opportunity to go internationally and they weren't getting the opportunity at the rate they should have to do medicine and some of the harder study courses so we raised the money to pay for an access our. Simon Pedley was brilliant he came from Teach First he was comprehensive educated then went to Oxbridge and then worked in a sixth form in London and he came to work with us in Birmingham to lead and identify those youngsters who from year nine upwards had the potential to go to a Russell Group University and do well. And he did it so well. And he helped them, independent schools had done it for years, helped them with the UCAS statements, develop links with Oxbridge Colleges. And yes, that matters. And yes, I do think it matters. And I'm proud that we doubled the number of youngsters who went to Russell Group Universities and we doubled the number of youngsters who went into medicine or dentistry. But it's not all that matters. And the other uh, lad I talk about in there, and again, I've got to check what his, his stage name is because I can't remember what I called him. Um, but he was one of our foster children who uh, was, came from a very difficult background and was a serial offender. We saw more of the local policeman. He became almost a friend than we did of any other uh, level of support. Um, and he really wasn't going to go anywhere very fast and we were really worried about him. And he was really unhappy and very badly damaged Um, and eventually um, I managed to find a scheme which gave him a training job at a uh, motor mechanic most of the time he was being arrested for mocking around on cars and motorbikes that's what he was getting trouble for so he liked engines but he didn't have the education to be able to go far and he was then by then about 17 and he bicycled seven miles a day to go and work with Jerry, the garage owner. And he transformed. But the deal was he had to do his city and guilds, and he couldn't read. So at night, I sat there, night after night, doing phonic blends and teaching him to read with Haynes motor manuals, because that's the only thing he was interested in. I could hardly give him four-year-old meeting material. And uh, all that I know about engines is thanks to him, and he can now read... And he did get his city and guilds Uh, and he now runs uh, his own business doing cars Um, and he still sees us, still rings us and still um, uh, is in touch with us and has done well as a result. And I am probably more proud of his city and guilds for mechanics than any of the achievements of any of the other youngsters, including my natural children, that have done because I know how hard he worked for that. He had to learn to read and write and he had to work very hard after having got covered in grease all day long. That's a it brilliant
1: matters. chapter. Yeah,
2: it, a... Yes, it matters. But it, mm-hmm. it matters that you find the right hoist and the right pathway for everyone.
1: Definitely. And then you talk about that, don't you, in the kind of and what I like at the end of this each chapter, Toby, as well, you have these reflective exercises. So I've actually been using this today with a member of staff. Um, I can't necessarily tell you the context without going to it. But uh, yeah, Yeah, okay. Uh, Luke, let's use Uh, Luke. And there was a real
2: Luke, I could tell you.
1: (laughs) I'm sure there was, yeah. But potentially looking at, um, you know, furthering their career in a particular um, way in potentially in another organisation. I might have to cut this part. But, you know, we were talking about the reflective questions at the end of the chapter. And considering, you know, you put them at the end of the, this chapter, you know, do your staff and those you serve get promoted regardless of the background. And that was a concern for Luke in terms of, you know, previous jobs, education, qualifications, etc. So I thought we have actually shared part of this chapter and the reflections are really powerful. I think they be really, really useful at the end of each chapter.
2: That's kind of you and that, that's the point. I mean, some won't do them, some will. Um, I, I'm a scribbler in books. That's absolute sacrilege to some, but I think write the answers. Um, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Build a hoist for your staff as well. It's very important.
1: Right now, speaking of favorite things now this section, I know that whenever people read books, they'll think that certain sections are particularly written for them, but this one leapt out at me, Toby, let me tell you, because this is me all over. Anyone who works with me or, you know, has the misfortune to deal with me on a daily basis will know this is absolutely made for me. Now, I'll read it to you and read your own work back to you. But you've put, I am sometimes far too honest in difficult moments. My poker face isn't good, and when I get stressed, I show it. Worse still, like many leaders, when I'm tired or after a series of nasty incidents, I can deal with things less well. I just felt, I thought, that's written for me. Perhaps a bit less about the, the honest bit at the beginning. I can, I can sometimes be quite. Um, political with the way that I put things to try and uh, spare people's feelings. But certainly if I'm annoyed or upset or stressed or worried, my goodness, can't you tell? And I always find that to be a huge, well, I hesitate to say weakness, but a difficulty in leadership. You know, when all things are, are going wrong around you and people are looking to you for direction, you know, the poker face is quite useful to have, isn't it? To kind of smile through. And I know some really good leaders that have that. So, you know, I've often wondered about, you know, how, what others would say about me and how I respond to a crisis and whether in fact they see what I feel in terms of that poker face thing. So how do you practice and how do you refine how you respond to big incidents and, you know, does experience and wisdom improve that poker face?
2: So the answer is yes, it does, but I still, still didn't do it very well. And and I, I, you know, I say in there, um, all my senior teams would often say sometimes I created more heat than light. Sometimes I made things worse rather than better. I thought I was making it better, and I think asking the questions is the right thing to do, but sometimes I do well. I mean, the best piece of advice I ever had early on was when I was ahead of a school for children with social, and emotional, and behavioral difficulties, now SEMH as it's called, um, where incidents blow. And you'll have this, too, in, in, in tough schools. You know, it's, you have a moment where a child's lost control, uh, now known as dysregulated, or there's there's a critical incident, and your adrenaline's going, your heart's going, and it's the same when you get that awful call about um, some nasty safeguarding incident or, or, or some accident in school. You know, I've had bomb scares and all sorts, and you, you your heart goes and I remember doing some training because I was trying to teach staff on how to de-escalate issues because you know like all these things the best issue is prevention far better than actually the issue starting and that's my other first tip is remember the critical instance how you respond to them but don't stop to then pause and look back and think about how it happened and I learned that at AQA where they had a really really good forensic lessons learned strategy for any little mistake that was made write it down. We didn't do it at the time and we'd come back a month later and go, okay, so we made a mistake here. Let's engineer this out for next time. What went wrong? What Was it human error? Was it computer error? How can we do it better? And the, the trainer who was training the staff said, when you get that call, often in a secondary school, it's on a radio, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Just hum in your head, Moon River. Do not run. Do not show anybody you're in a rush. And you try and run and you try and get in panic while you're humming Moon River. Moon River. And it slows you down. Now, for some incidents, I literally have to stop and I say a prayer, literally. I'd stop and I'd pause and I'd think. The other piece of advice that's really important is surround yourself with people who balance you. And that's what you do as a leader all the time in any organisation. And so I always had someone who was wise counsel. I always had someone I would go and unload. Now sometimes, if you're at home, it's my wife, I go, you never believe what's happened. And she, Will you stop catastrophizing? Just, has anybody died? I had a head of one of my schools who used to say, the roof is still on, boss. It's all fine. Uh, I go, yeah, but no, the roof is still on. So you do need someone who pulls you back uh, before you then go and deal with the incident or you do your public face. But never, ever, ever forget the large shadow that a leader casts. Never, ever forget how you or your nonverbals make others feel. If you look like you're panicking and you look like you can't sort it and you look like, then you know what's going to happen. Uh, but don't, don't bluster it. Own up to when you get it wrong. Be human and authentic. But at the same time, take that time so that you can react well, but not emotively. Keep the emotion inside, be authentic in the way you do it, but try and keep it in perspective. And it is hard to do. And you know, you, everybody can have a million war stories, but it is hard, particularly when it's life and death issues. Or, you know, I can remember people ringing and saying, we've made a mistake on an exam. And I'd immediately think, see those children's faces. And think we've given someone the wrong result. They may have gone to a different university. It was like, oh my God, we've got to sort that now. No, we've got to find out what we did wrong and whether we did do it wrong and whether they did go to the wrong university and check out how we can deal with it and how we can sort it if that is the case. Does that make yeah. sense?
1: It absolutely makes sense. And, and for any new leaders that are listening, I think that's the biggest um, lesson you can take, isn't it, in terms of how your response influences and sets the tone for everybody else. And you can bring it down to me like you did to Little Incidents. Like, you know, we all have scuffles in the playground. You know, I have a thing about I won't run to a scuffle in the playground unless it's obviously an imminent risk of harm to one person or another Um, and there's somebody else there. Because I think that if I run to it, you can bet your bottom dollar there'll be about 200 other kids who are bound to run to it to join me. So actually, you know, you're trying to make sure that you keep it calm. And If I can give um, a shout out here that I might have to trim later on to our CEO. So John Stevens is our kind of go-to person to remain calm in in all situations. It doesn't matter what I tell him about whatever it is. He just says, right, okay, that's interesting. And then we'll listen and I think I already feel better just from that calm Uh, uh, reassurance.
2: You've just reinforced what I say, which is always find around you those mm. people. And, and and he's not complacent, but he is no, reassuring. Oh, mm. And I've had chairman of, you know, uh, when I was at Ormiston or AQA, um, or even when I was running the, the group of schools, and I could ring them and I could say, this, 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 and this, and they go, okay. So, and I go and say, you need to understand that the front page of the Daily Mirror tomorrow is going to have. Okay. Yeah. And and you know sort of talk you back and Mm -hmm. and i could do it with them but i wouldn't have done it with someone else and you just have to know who it is
1: you can go to talking to teachers about educational books why we love them and how we use them in our classrooms with guest authors publishers podcasters and of course teachers nailers natter just talking to teachers Um, Right. Let's go into the next one. So I know we've touched on this earlier on in terms of, you know, decisions that you you kind of wish you said no to. And that idea that, you know, work-life balance is important, but it's very, very difficult um, when you're actually in the cut and thrust of the job to kind of model those values. But you do talk about it in one of the chapters. You talk about this idea of, and I'll get the word right, um, presenteeism, which I like. so, how important is it to model work-life balance to those you lead, and does teaching as a profession overly value that presenteeism, particularly from leaders? So, the
2: answer is yes. <laughs> uh, we're terrible. We're absolutely terrible. I don't know whether it comes from in the education world, um, teachers forever being ribbed about long holidays. I can hear the things being thrown at me metaphorically as I say it. We seem to excuse ourselves the whole time. Now, I know that I never had a full summer holiday when I was a teacher or at any other time in my educational career. Um, and my biggest problem has been, particularly now with technology, and we talk about that later, um, the intrusion and the omnipresence that you have. But presenteeism is a real problem. And the senior person in the organisation is expected, and we expect them to be the first in, the last out, and when I was ahead, and it still happens now, the alarm, one to put on the alarm when everybody's gone home and the one to, to lock up sometimes and, and to, to be seen to be doing the hours and making sure you share the burden with everybody else. And sometimes you can get that wrong. And Nelson Mandela, to use the quote at the beginning, but he, he talks about uh, you can take the, the front when there is danger and then people appreciate your leadership. But you don't have to be at the front all the time. You don't have to be the one who's there all the time, doing it all the time. And if you're gonna get some form of work-life balance, you need to understand, particularly as you become more senior in organization, you need time to reflect. You need time to actually think. You need time to communicate. You need time to, to plan your strategy. And you need time for your family and your own well-being. You now, part of the reason that I knew the time was right for me to stop being a CEO was because I was physically not well, but I also knew mentally I was getting tired and I was worried that I'd make the wrong decision. Because when you're in charge of something, you're making big decisions and you have a responsibility to keep that work-life balance right. But also, it's a cliche but it's true, most of us, and all of us should, Work to live, not live to work. So it's really important what we do. Really important that we make a difference to Darren. But we're also looking after those that we love that are close to us. We're also considering how we then don't burn out in the the time. And I do think there is something about the, the thing. And I'm going to find, if I can find it, you might remember where it was. The letter from Biden to his staff. So it's in chapter 18 about your work-life balance and talking about your non-negotiables. Biden, when he was vice president, so before he became president, wrote this letter to his staff and it, it struck a chord with me and it made me think I wish I'd done this. I wish I had done this. To my wonderful staff, I would like to take a moment and make something clear to everyone. I do not expect, nor do I want, any of you to miss or sacrifice important family obligations for work. Family obligations include, but are not limited to, family birthdays, anniversaries, weddings, any religious ceremonies such as First Communions and Bar Mitzvahs, graduations, and times of need such as illness or loss in the family. This is very important to me. In fact, I will go so far as to say that if I find out that you are working with me while missing important family responsibilities, it will disappoint me greatly. This has been an unwritten rule since my days in the Senate. And I wish I'd been more explicit sometimes to my own staff. And what you need to understand is when you're working all hours, God sends, younger staff around you are thinking that's what they have to do too. When you're making choices against it, now, do you have to work hard? Yes. Do you sometimes have to put work first? Yes. But should you actually sometimes model, we're all going to go home at a time. So I now do quite a lot of coaching for lots of heads and CEOs. And I'm forever having to say to them, one of the pacts I want you to make is that you will leave the office or the school by six o'clock. Or you'll have a meal at home around the table with those that you love once a week. And it seems incredulous that we have to say that and that you have to hold them to account to do that. Because you quickly lose your sense of focus, and I say that to you, Phil, while you're
1: sat in school after your, <laughs> your oh, day yeah. job, and yeah. I
2: know that there's a whole pile of other stuff that you've got to do before tomorrow.
1: <laughs> there indeed there is, but then this is this is part of. Reading the book, I suppose, in the sense that I've prioritized my own professional development. And if by proxy of my own professional development, you know, X number of people listening to this podcast and getting this from you, Toby, that's the way I do it. Because, you know, this is a bit of CPD for me and it's a bit of time of reflection for me. And you're absolutely right with that. You know, we spend our time, particularly in the, I hesitate to say post pandemic school because it isn't, is it? But we're still uh, in a strange state of flux sometimes. But it's very, very busy. I know it was always busy, but it's even busier because from one day to next, you can be the deputy head, you can be the DSL, you can be, you know, a duty member of staff, you can be a you can be a lollipop person outside, can't you? You can be any number of things because of the absences and the covering and everything else. So this time to reflect, you know, and I am lucky enough to be able to reflect with people like yourself. This is valuable time, so I will yeah. prioritise this yeah, in the yeah, no. and say, well, I can think about this, and hopefully people will get that. But I was going to follow up with, do you think that this has got worse now? this idea that you need to be present because people are covering for other people, people are having to do over and above. And I know that teachers always have, but particularly at the moment, do you feel like it's work life balance has kind of gone the back burner? um, I think it's,
2: it's it's a, it's an even bigger challenge than that because I think Mm -hmm. technology is fantastic, but it also means that people are intruding further into their personal life. Mm. You know, it's almost incredulous, isn't it? That, and I would have done it. I'm telling you I would have done it. But the people can be ill because they've got COVID. And yet, they can still do it online from home. <laughs> I mean, you know, two years ago, that would have been seen as completely irresponsible. You're asking somebody who's ill to teach remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, and we. And at the same time, you're also thinking, you know, when I'm leading large organizations, you're immediately thinking, I need to fill that gap. Because if they can't do it, and I still do it. You know, e- even when I was a CEO of an organization of a thousand people, someone with a senior member of staff was always, I staff, my first reaction was always, could I do that? Can I, what bit of that could I take on? Um, how can I jiggle it around? Or who can I share that work with, with other people? In other words, and you know, the danger is, it's always the same people who take on more. It's always, you know, it's that, that cliche of, you know, if you want something done, ask a busy person. Well, you think how many times in your leadership team, you're asking the same person. Is that the right thing? And are they doing too much? And what are they giving up as a result? And at the moment, I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I call it, you know, it's the, the old uh, joke that people do, BC, before COVID, and AD, after the disease. Um, you know, we're now in a- AD, although I'm not sure we are. Um, <laughs> it doesn't feel like that for those who are still yeah. working in schools. The disease is still very much with us, and the disruption and the juggling.
1: Yeah. And I mean, if we can move into, I know we're going to talk about technology, but if I jump around on the questions, because I think it naturally follows yeah, no, 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 from what you're saying in terms of, and, you know, I love the, the chapter about technology and, and the phrase that you used about, you know, leaders using technology so that you they, so that you rule it rather than it ruling you. And if I can just share something very quickly, I've done a lot on this, Toby, obviously before and after reading the book that you know, I've got myself a work phone. So thank you to school for giving me a work phone because it allows me to put on the work phone Obviously, it's, it's on all the time because it might need to be a safeguarding concern. My emails are on there. Even some of the social media apps that I hesitate to call work, i.e. Twitter and other things, are on one phone. And then personal stuff is very much on the other. And we've um, got an email policy and protocols around emails mustn't be sent after 7 o'clock at night. We've tried to encourage people to speak to people where they possibly can. So we are doing that because you, you said it in the book about you know technology can reach you wherever you are at the moment, which is good for some things and we wouldn't have got through the remote teaching and the partial school closures without technology and I wouldn't be able to speak to you tonight without the power of technology but it's the omnipresence of the mobile device and the emails and the laptop that can cause potentially unnecessary stress for leaders so how do you suggest in the book that we go about kind of you know ruling technology rather than it ruin us so I talk
2: about it and I, and I really do I think technology is fantastic so my first headship, I can remember asking the chair of governors um, that I would like a computer, and him looking absolutely aghast. Why would you want one of them? We've got one in the school office. And it wasn't that long ago. Mm-hmm. It was 1999. Yeah. Um, and I said, well, there's this new thing called emails I think might be useful. And actually, I think it would be useful. It would reduce the burden on the office if I could do some things myself. But, you know, I say in the book, The average person looks at their mobile phone 227 times a day. So while we've been talking, I can guarantee many of your listeners will have looked at their phone at least twice. Mm. And, you know, we're all addicted to it. We all do it. Um, But my first technology device was a Casio watch that used to ping when I was doing break duty. I was so proud of it. Um, And I rushed around and then I had a bleeper, a pager. All the senior leaders had a bleak pager. <laughs> we used to get these codes, and I used to know, oh, I've got to go to so-and-so. So-and-so's doing something. And, I, you know, it was before mobile phones.
1: And we loved mobile... you, but you. Sorry, I'm interrupting. Yeah, okay, no, I really, on. but only because I enjoyed this. You had a Palm Pilot, didn't you? You oh, yeah. had, like, I had the Dell Palm Pilot with the pencil that you yeah, could pull out. Fantastic. Get... It was really good, wasn't it? Oh, uh, and super. you could
2: sync it in that little cradle beside your computer. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I was so proud of it. But I had the first version, which wouldn't sync properly. And I was really proud. And I tell this in the story of of how I was using my Palm Pilot. And I had every single appointment, every single break duty, every single meeting, you know, a child protection meeting, every duty, every lesson was in there. I was so pleased with it. Um, But in a row with my wife, who was so fed up with my work-life balance, uh, when we had three young children, she just was exasperated. We were living on school site. She famously said, you're not listening to me because I was doing something else. I said, I am. She said, "I'll, I'll make you listen. Uh, and we just had a row. She had, she had at that stage, and it is in the book, but I won't spoil all the stories. Uh, she had actually managed to empty out my chest of drawers with all my clothes and my box of shorts and pour them out the top bedroom window of our house. Now, our house was in the main drive of the school, and it was early in the morning just the staff arriving staff briefing. So actually, when I went to staff briefing to take staff briefing, one after the other, members of staff handed me a box <laughs> or a of pants. They all knew we'd had a row. They, what they didn't know was shortly after that, because I wasn't listening, I was cross about it, she got the palm pencil and she pressed the reset button and deleted the whole thing and it hadn't synced. And so for months, I was turning up late to meetings or in the wrong place at the wrong time. So I still now, even now, have a paper diary. <laughs> um, and, and th- I also talk in the book about how it can help you have a presence. And Doug Lemoff talks about the importance of teachers having a presence. It's the same for leaders. Leaders need to be seen and people need to know that you're being seen. So whether that's through CCTV, and you know controversially or not, in one of the schools we had CCTV with permission of parents and staff and children, but it meant that I could see wherever I was, even if it was another school or I was in London, I could see a classroom. And I'd sometimes ring the extension number of the classroom and go, good afternoon, could you tell Michael that he needs to take his coat off? Because I am watching. And you'd see the child look at the camera and take their coat off. And you still had a presence even though you weren't there. But I also think, you know, you can get it wrong. Uh, I think phone conferences and video conferences are fantastic for the right thing at the right time. And again, I talk in the book about one time I got it wrong. So it was a very important meeting, I was told, when I was at the National College and Steve was the scary chief executive. And it was with Mike Wilshaw, who was the then HMCI, and Jim Knight, who was the then schools minister, and a gaggle of other people. But I knew them all quite well. And I was thinking it won't be that interesting. And I had—I told you earlier, one of my non-negotiables, I have a run. And I knew I had meetings all day. So I was going to have a run in the morning. And I thought, I won't have time to have a bath or a shower. Except this meeting was at eight o'clock in the morning. I tell you what, I can do the phone conference. I can do what everybody's done before. It's a bit like turning the camera off on Zoom. Mm -hmm. I'll just put it on mute and I'll have the bath. um, And then I'll have had my bath, got out and be having a cup of coffee to join the meeting at the right moment. And I was doing really well until about half an hour into the meeting when someone, after I'd been in the bath for half an hour, someone said, in fact, it was Jim Knight, is someone in the bath? <laughs> <laughs> and all the way through my ablutions, they'd been listening to me blowing my nose and b- washing my hair. Um, and afterwards, I said to Steve, I'm sorry, that was me. He said, well, I knew it was you all along, but I had to tell you to stop it. Uh, <laughs> so you can get it wrong. You can get it wrong. But I do think, Technology should be a servant, not a master. And I think you need to look really carefully about how you model it. And the obvious thing that everybody knows, an email or a communication from the senior person in an organization has a disproportionate weight. Mm-hmm. People weigh and measure every word. And if you put it in capitals, they think you're shouting. <laughs> and That may be just a mistake that you've put it on block capitals. And, you know, I, I have done... Appalling typos. Um, appalling typos that I shiver at, which I didn't even realize, um, which is inverted a word and made it wrong. Mm. Um, I've sent, like everybody else, a CC or a BCC to the wrong person. Mm. And there's no point saying you can retrieve it. The damage is done. Um, so be really careful. And I
1: really applaud you saying you do it before 7, but can you really do it before 7? Well... Uh, the the way that we do it and it's it's kind of what you're saying there in terms of i'm not suggesting just for myself but you know if you if i send an email then or a dsl sends an email it's probably going to be rather urgent and someone will attend to it immediately won't they so i do try to have most of those conversations face-to-face where possible or within working hours but i will still work after those hours but we have a delay send thing which has got pros and cons that the pros are that you can still continue work get ahead of yourself be ready for the next day the cons are that everyone gets a barrage of emails at se- one minute past seven every single morning, and I'm not sure they always get attended to. But we're trying to build that culture of people speak to people, and people come in and have those conversations. Where, yeah, I mean, so. and, and
2: I've done in all the organisations I've had a detox week, which I'm sure you've done. When you know, let's have a week of not doing emails and talk to each other instead, mm-hmm. and that's really revealing. I I, you, I personally don't like the delay thing. Mm-hmm. I I also think people have a right, you know, for me. I have to do the email. I remember, and I would rather do it and send it and know that the person has the right to ignore it or not. Uh,
1: mm-hmm. I
2: I hate, I, I, and I'm not alone here. I hate having a full inbox. I get quite stressed. So if I came into a hundred emails, I'd, I'd fall over.
1: I'm with you, and I mean this is why I'm still here now, and I won't leave. And myself, and until uh, it's clear, yeah, other, you know, the other deputies, we will not, we won't leave. Neither of us. It's a standing joke. You know, we'll meet each other on the way down at uh, whatever past six tonight. Um, We've, we've got to clear our inboxes and we've got to clear our notifications on, uh, you know, software of choice for safeguard, like, say, Pump yeah, for example. I've yeah. got, yeah, yeah. got to have seen every notification. And you have. have yeah.
2: yeah. But that's why I, I I might decide, no, actually, I've had enough today. I'll do this after I've had supper. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. But I mean, and you're also right about just because you prefer to work within those hours, it doesn't mean that other people do. So other people would like to know, actually, wouldn't they? They don't want yeah. it hanging over them for the full weekend. And that was that was one of the reasons why. But I've changed my working day anyway, Toby, now. So thanks to Douglas Moff, I'm now the reverse Dolly Parton. Um, I'm working <laughs> five... I'm working five to nine now is my new um working thing because people don't get up at that time, do they? So it means I can I can clear the inbox and get it myself and people must say, and this is this is one thing about perception. I know we're going off topic slightly, but people will see me strolling in at eight o'clock. And I do get a few looks and people do have a cast a glance and say, Oh, hang on a minute, why is it going to come in at eight o'clock? You know, lots of people are in before that. What they might not realise is that I've been up since five. I've managed to run, not to your standard, obviously, but just a little trot around the block um, and trying to get a bit of exercise in. I've done my social media updates for the day so I don't have to touch the phone for the rest of the day unless I've said something that I really shouldn't have said, in which case I will have to remove it. Um, and then I've got ahead of myself with the email so that when I come in, I'm bound to have people at the door, which is good and, you know, to be encouraged in that culture of people come and speak to you and tell you things, but... I found that to be quite useful. And then when I get home, I might have something to eat and then it's pretty much bedtime, isn't it? But you are right. I mean, you can have blanket bans, but people want to work when they want to work, don't they? And These you are adults.
2: Them. And lead, yeah. you know, senior leaders are, are bright people, but but it, it, yeah, they've got to find a way that works for them. Um, yeah, and it's sad. You come home and you watch, I mean, I'm very proud if I used to get to the end of the 10 o'clock news um, before I'd asleep. But the reality is, you know, choose the right thing that's right for you. Um, but technology and I think gel- gel- it's improving all the time you know yeah. my first headship weren 't even computers you know when when I went to school and some of your listeners are old enough to remember we didn 't have calculators didn 't have computers when I went to university, no computers I did my master 's dissertation I was so proud of it I learned to type on a canon star writer um, you know that, that it was it was a long time ago, but technology has moved. Remar- miraculously. I think we should embrace what technology does for us now and we should use it more. But we need to guard our private time and our family time too. Definitely.
1: And of course clearing your inbox, Toby, in those days was clearing your pigeonhole, wasn't it? And yeah. clearing your, your tray yeah. of all the paperwork.
2: Yeah, uh, and, and I made mistakes then. I used to have they were, apparently I didn't know they were called pinkies. I used to have bit, pink bits of duplicate paper so I had duplicate pads so I could have a copy of what I'd asked someone to do. Mm. Um, and then my pad had it on there but apparently they hated my pinkies. It was only in my second headship. Someone said, can we not have your pinkies? We hate them. <laughs> we feel <laughs> sick every time we see them in the inbox. I think it's the equivalent of a shouty email.
1: <laughs> right. If we can do one more question, that's all right. And then obviously yeah, we'll yeah. signpost we listeners start, to yeah. the book. So um, one again, one thing that rung true with me, and I'm sure it will with listeners as well, is about meetings. Um, yep. But you gave some really practical and quite different advice, uh, if I might say, in terms of, Um, how you responded to meetings and some of your kind of non-negotiables golden rules for meetings so do you mind sharing about you know what role these meetings should take in a team's work and also how important and this is this was really key for me and something i'm going to adopt straight away from the book having an allocated slot in your diary to prepare follow-up and further communicate the outcomes of meetings because goodness knows i've sat in a lot of meetings many of which i've chaired, so i'm not you know um abdicating responsibility for this where we've gone through a a list of updates, list of things that we're going to do. And then next week we have the same list because nothing's really happened. We just talk a lot. So having that slot, how important is that?
2: So I've I've changed my mind about meetings a lot, but here are my top tips on it. So um, I do think there is a culture of meetings and, you know, in the civil service, it was terrible. You know, we'd have meetings about meetings and, you know, in my wife's job, I hear her have an all day meeting for our, to prepare for a half-day meeting I'm thinking that surely is wrong that's a day and a half of a week spent about a meeting Um, and meetings are not the work was the cliche that we used to use at AQA all the time because people would think well we'll sort this out with a meeting no sometimes just a chat in the corridor or a phone call will do you don't need to have everybody there and everybody needs to be involved but I've always found it hard to make sure that I make the right contribution to a meeting at the right time and to be properly prepared and to make sure the balance is right. So um, I remember when I was at the college asking Jeff Southworth, who was the deputy CEO before me, um, a bright professor who worked hard in in lots of different roles. I said, Jeff, I don't understand how you always look so cool and calm in your meetings and you're always so well prepared, but I always feel like I'm running from the last thing to the next thing. And I'm lucky if I've read all the papers. And he said, well, the mistake you're making and I've never managed to achieve it completely, so don't get too excited, Phil, is that for every hour of a meeting, you need another hour, which is your preparation time, your communication time, and your reflection time. And he's not wrong, you know, because some of the decisions that come out of a meeting are really important, and then you you badly communicate those on the hoof, in the wrong way, and they land badly, and all the good work of the decision that's been made is undone. Or you go to a meeting and you're actually trying to contribute to the meeting by reading at the same time and you haven't prepared properly. So you haven't reflected or canvas views beforehand. So you're not actually having to shoot from the hip or you're having to um, sort of look along. And I remember another colleague who was so good. He used to listen to me. I used to work really hard, stay up really night, read all the papers. Then I'd proudly spew my points out. Talk too much as I have today, and um, there were very good points, always very good points, and I always worked really hard. And my mate Ken would sit there really quiet all the way through, and all he was doing was probably reading the papers. And all he did was write notes, and at the very end, he would paraphrase what everybody else had said. And then he'd be like, great, thank you for your contribution. Everybody would go, I think all he's done is just copy everybody else's <laughs> ideas and synthesize them, and being really restrained and coming at the right moment. But 75% of people have admitted. That they spend time in a meeting, not listening, and working another work. You know, and we all know that we've done emails. Uh, I, I've done BlackBerry now, iPhone messages, and everything else it, it, during meetings when I shouldn't have been. And I think here are my top tips: match the time for the meeting and allow that extra hour if you can. And it's a good discipline if someone else is planning your diary to say if you're putting that meeting in. You'll need to find me time to do the preparation, and I want it diarized, and I want a small amount of time to communicate. I've never managed to have an hour for hour, if I'm really honest. Think about when you do it. That's as important as who and what. So Daniel Pink talks about what's the worst time in the day when everybody's energy level dips. It's not after lunch, it's between three and five. What's the time that most SLT meetings happen in the school or most CPD sometimes? It's in those twilight hours, and it's the time when people have got the least energy and the least focus. So think when the time is right for having the meeting, as well as planning who should be there and what should be done. And I'm obsessive now about planning the agenda because you're absolutely right. Otherwise, what happens is you get to matters arising and you have the whole meeting all over again. Well, everybody updates on what they haven't done or what they have done since the last time. So you have the same meeting sometimes three times over. So I don't do that. I think you should have short pithy minutes which are just the actions only and what you've decided. And the action log should be done and dusted. And no reviewing and stewing over the same items. They have to go on the agenda. And I personally, if I'm chairing a meeting, I want the meeting slots in with individual items timed. With the actual time, 11.05 to 11.20, 11.05 to 11.07, whatever it is, on the agenda for everybody to see. So it's an actual visual cue. We've spent too long on this item. Of course, if something's going wrong and you want to do it, you move it round. But in your head, it keeps you to time and it keeps it going. And I don't allow any other business. That's a, never ever. You've got a problem you want to talk about, then Ask at the beginning to readjust the agenda. Don't throw it in the end when everybody's tired and dead. Or come and see me beforehand. Or put it on the virtual agenda, however people manage it. Or put it on Teams and say, I think we need to discuss this at all right. Um, and I think the other thing that's my other golden rule is plan what your messages are at the end of the meeting. So if you put it into a, a school context or a Mac context, everybody knows you're having a meeting. The senior people are there. All sorts of myths and legends grow up around that. Do you, do you know what they discussed today? They, 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 I think they're talking about redundancies. I think they do that. Remember, people are wondering what you're doing, or they think you're having a party. You know, or you know, and that does happen. You know, some in some places. Um, bring your own booze. Yes. Yeah, bring your own booze. No, no, it was a work event. Um, oh, yeah. Anyway, so you might be having. Uh, they they want to know what you're doing. So at the end, agree with everybody. How do you feel? What are some of the key messages? What are the decisions we made? What are we going to tell our teams? What are you going to tell your staff? What are you going to tell your people at the end of this? So they know what decisions have been made, where you can, and they know how you spent your time. And I think that's really, really important. Because otherwise, you have a meeting for a meeting second, there's no output. And they don't know what's going on. And I I genuinely think I've got that wrong often. But I think you need to read the room. (coughs) Watch. What pe- and when I th- when you're doing the message keep it simple keep it simple stupid you know kiss uh, and read the room and I would say that's virtual as well as physical you can tell when people have zoned out you can tell and, and, and any teacher can do it standing on their head you can tell when someone's going red in the face and getting upset you can tell if someone's about to burst in tears or are uncomfortable watch when people come into the room where are they choosing to sit I know lots of people often sit in the same place but sometimes they don't who are they coming in with And if you pick up noises or you pick up fag butts of conversations, then challenge it and say. Or one of the advantages for me is I'm always having to go to the loo, so I'll just say, let's have a break. Um, And then you can go and talk to that person who's going red in the face and say, have you got a problem with this? Is there something I'm missing here? I haven't heard you say anything. So you can draw them in. They might prefer to do it. I would say I have had near misses saved many, many times, including near-strike near, near, near strike action for some issues in, in, a, in an organization, averted because I've taken the time to look at the non-verbals and use my spider sense to say, is that person? And they've given you such wise advice uh, in those fringes of the meeting. And then you come back and you say, actually, Suzanne's got something she needs to say. And it pushes the debate on. So meetings are really powerful, but they need to be properly chaired, properly planned at the right time not for the sake of having them and you need to provide time for you to do it and is a meeting always the right way of making decisions sometimes it's not
1: No, definitely. And we, we've streamlined ours to be on the same evening, which so has got pros and cons, but at least yep. people know when they're going to be. And obviously different teams can meet within the times that we've allocated. And one, and then the SLT is the one that mops up at the end. So we've got the, yep. the time for CPD and then we kind of feed from that, which is working a little bit better. Although one of my favorites, Toby, I'm sure you get this as well, is that when you are in a, an, a meeting, and it's usually an SLT meeting, when your phone or your emails are going from two or three people who are in the same room as you, sending you an email in the middle of somebody else presenting whatever it might be on the SLT agenda, which I always find is quite an interesting one. Yeah. I think, well, really we shouldn't bother in the meeting then could should we, if no one's concentrating on it and we're all sending each other emails, probably not. I'll uh,
2: tell you a funny story. It's not in the book and I won't tell you which organization <laughs> and I won't mention the real names. So I've got to change the names in my head uh, and then we'll finish. Um, at the time when I was doing hybrid meetings before They were trendy and everyone did them. So, Because it was a a national organization, I'd have people in the office, but we'd also have people coming in on the screen. Mm -hmm. Um, And to make sure you could share stuff, you'd share your laptop, as we do now. Mm -hmm. And I can remember he was very good. He was a really good member of staff, but he did have a, a naughty side of him. And he thought that it was private, but what he actually put on the screen during the meeting, during the discussion, was... Hasn't so-and-so got really fat? the other person said, thanks very much for that, mate." (laughs) And And he didn't know where to put himself. Um, He thought he was actually sending an email to his colleague next door. He wasn't concentrating anyway. And I thought, I'm not going to let it go. I said, do you really think that? I'll call him Liam. Liam, is that what you really think about, Johnny? And he went, I, 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 I think you might need to address it because Johnny's just there and he doesn't look fat <laughs> to me. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you say be careful. You can be it caught it well, many times.
1: You certainly can. Well, yeah, we could keep that in the agenda item for next week to see whether Liam had improved uh, and taken to more <laughs> physical exertion based on this. I, I can um, echo that when a, a famous meeting I had in the early days of online meetings um, – for me, anyway, I know they existed previously, but three or four years ago when uh, David Weston of the Teacher Development Trust oh, I can, you. <laughs> yeah, kindly invited me to present something, which I assumed was audio, Toby, um, and I assumed it was just to him and a couple of members of the TDT team. However, upon um, sitting at the, the dining room table after a very busy day in school, I was, um, you know, dressed perfectly well in the pajamas that my children had got me for christmas um eating a bowl of cornflakes and trying to kind of prepare for the thing when the camera switched on i was beamed into the oak panel rooms with <laughs> numerous luminaries of, uh, yeah. so i had uh, me in pajamas and cornflakes um yeah. see yeah, now that's work.
2: that's not extraordinary nowadays but you know then no. it was
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, the pyjamas were certainly extraordinary, let me tell you, but we'll uh, we'll leave that for Christmas another day. Christmas pyjamas, always a mistake. Uh, they were superb. Right, so I could speak to you literally all night, but I want people to to leave wanting more and wanting to go and pick up the book, which I know a lot of people have already. So if you wouldn't mind, just signposting listeners to where the book is available um, and to maybe your website, social media feeds, those kind of things where they can get into it. So with you. so
2: I'm I'm awful at social media, but they will find me under Prof Toby on Twitter, but I hardly say anything. I'm or, Laura calls a lurker. I do engage, and I do watch, um, and you'll find me on LinkedIn. Um, but in terms of the book, it's The Juggling Act, How to Juggle Leadership in Life. It's published by John Cat. Amazon's the easiest place to find it, really, just put Toby Salt, Juggling Act, and it'll come up. The ISBN is 978-1913-622-848. And it's an absolute snip. And it's a really, really important thing for you, but also for your leaders, to just keep a sense of perspective and last a bit longer in what's a most important job, but a tough job. And I'm worried now, Phil, that you're going to have to go and look at CPOMs and see. No, I, what did, it, I did it. I did it
1: before. I'd be pleased oh, to know? Well and if done. my if John, my CEO is listening, you be pleased to know that I did do that beforehand, uh, John. It's always, that it's
2: always, it's, a, it's always on a Friday evening.
1: It, the worst well, happens. Yeah, we we have a So that that's an interesting uh, juggling act of leadership and life for me because um, without boring you, and I probably cut this part, but I'll share it anyway. Um, I don't necessarily I don't live with my children, so I haven't weekends. Yeah. So one of the things that we do really is important that, you're there then. Well, is the, well, I don't do Fridays, so we can so I have a complete detox of the weekend. So I mean, obviously, it's got pros and cons. I'm not advertising it as a as a way of life, listener, but it means <laughs> I can I can work evenings. Um, but I don't work weekends unless it's an emergency. I do have the full. And that goes
2: back to my point about choose your times because you're absolutely yeah. right. People don't understand the complexity of individual lives. Mm-hmm. You know, and when I worked in boarding schools, I had duty nights, so I'd work till midnight. Well, that was yeah. a brilliant time to work, so don't tell yeah. me I can't do emails at 10 o'clock at night. That's time exactly. of working.
0: Well, back um, to the
1: reverse dolly part, not we? But, I mean, one of the rules is we don't leave on a Friday night. We just don't, and we don't expect to leave on a Friday night, and we don't plan to leave. I was, I was kind of burned with that quite early on. Yeah. Um, in this role that you know people are going to need you on a friday night so we yeah. stay we, we have meetings we have discussions it's one of our better evenings in school but we do stay right until the very end because yeah. that's when all things are particularly at half terms anyway i probably am going to get kicked out at that some point. so that was lovely now thank you so much so we Really, really appreciate i hope, it. I hope you can do
2: something with that and thank you very much for asking
0: Nailer's Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development. At PNA 1977 on Twitter. Nailer's Natter, just talking to teachers. Nailer's Natter the book. Ideas and advice from the collective wisdom of teachers. Naylor's Natter brings together a wealth of advice from the most influential voices in education today. In this exciting, one-of-a-kind book, Phil Naylor revisits the very best interviews from three years of education podcasting, drawing on the advice and opinions from some of the world's most innovative educators. Available now for pre-order from Amazon and out on July 7th, 2022.